So we're, uh, as Mike was saying, we're in the book of Nehemiah, and this is our last week there, and uh, it's been a series called Under Construction, and the idea is that every single one of us, our lives are under construction, that, that God, we have been created in God's image, and that God has put a vision for how, what our lives are supposed to look like in our hearts. And so what happens is, all of us, I mean, even if you're kind of just checking church out, and you're here, and you don't you're not sure about God, you're not sure about the Bible, all that, probably one of the reasons why you're here is that you're trying to figure out there's something in me that says my life should be different. And I believe, uh, and I'm correct because I'm a pastor, uh, I believe that that is the Spirit of God that's telling you there's something different, there's something better out there. And so all of us, me, you, everybody, we're all included in this idea that we're under construction. And so what we've been doing is we've been looking at one of the greatest projects in the Bible, and it's in the book of Nehemiah. And basically the idea behind Nehemiah is that God had a vision for his people. And the vision for his people would be that they would obey his laws, they would treat each other the way he intended, they would live the way he intended, and their lives would be so blessed and their relationship with God so real that the nations around would take notice and they would glorify God, (laughs) not Israel. And in the same way, this is how our lives are set up. We have a relationship with God. We have this possibility to enter into a relationship with the living God who created the entire universe and that he's given us his word, which uh, is living and active, and that if we would apply God's word, if we would treat each other the way He says to treat each other. If we were to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, our lives would would be displayed in such a way that the nations or the people around us would see and take notice and glorify God. The way Jesus put it was this. He, He said, let your light shine in such a way that they'll see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Let your light shine in such a way. Let, let, let God's kingdom have such an impact on your life that you, your life would actually shine and that people would go, man, what is it about you? And you say, it's, it's my God. It's the God I serve. And so because of that, because God has kind of put this in all of us to have this relationship with him and a relationship that's supposed to be so real um, uh, that it, it actually has an impact with those around us, all our lives are under construction as we move closer and closer to that. When I was nine or ten years old, I don't really know, um, my, my grandfather had this Cadillac. And um, now you have to understand, this was 34 years ago or 33 years ago. So um, don't think of like a Cadillac Escalade. Think of like a Cadillac. And it was so fancy This car was so fancy, you could press a button and the door locks would pop up and you could press it again and they'd they'd lock. I don't know if you can wrap your head around this, but this was just incredible. And it had a switch on his door. And if you pulled that switch back, the window would roll down. You didn't have to use the crank. It would roll down. I don't know. Again, this is futuristic stuff, crazy stuff. He had on his steering wheel, it did, like in a normal steering, okay, you know a normal steering wheel. On the back side of the steering wheel that you couldn't see was this black band. 
and when you squeeze the steering wheel, the horn would honk. I don't, know, I don't know how it happened, but you'd squeeze it and the horn would honk. Now, they don't have that anymore because you can imagine the way I drive. It's like, you know, this the whole time. But they, they had this thing. Okay? They had another item on this car that I had to have explained to me by my 16-year-old brother. So you can imagine how great the explanation was. But it was this unbelievable technology called cruise control, right? And and and. We couldn't use it because my, my, my grandfather lived in New Jersey, so it was like a lot of different city streets and stuff and windy roads. You just couldn't use cruise control. So my brother explained it to me. I, I, I didn't know what it was. He said, here's the way cruise control works. Let's say you're on a real straight stretch of road, you know, like, the, like in the desert. You put it on cruise control, you can climb in the back seat and play cards with somebody, okay? <laughs> This is how he understood cruise control, and he was passing his wisdom down to me, right? Well, then I got a car with cruise control, and it, that isn't how it works, uh, apparently. No, right? You, you figure out it doesn't, it doesn't work that way. Cruise control, matter of fact, I don't even use cruise control. I hate cruise control, and it might be because I'm in California where there's just too many cars, and you're constantly, like for me, I set cruise control, and I'm like, this is awesome for the first 10 seconds, but then I don't know where to put this foot. Like it's so, I'm so used to having it out here. I don't know if you've ever done this, but you like put it down. You're like, no, it's just not that. I don't, you know, you're trying to, you're trying to stretch it out over here or whatever. It just doesn't work. And then you, you I don't know if you do this either, but I'll be driving and then I'll be coming up on a car typically. Uh, and, and so you're pressing the decrease button and trying to get it just right. And then, you know, you pass them or whatever. And it's, you know, all these types of things. Cruise control doesn't really work the way my brother explained it to me. And it wasn't designed to work. So then I heard about autopilot. Now, autopilot is better than cruise control because in autopilot, you got all that space up there. You can actually set the plane on its course and the the pilots can literally not look around. You know, they got radar in there, and they'll tell you on a collision course long before you need to worry about it. And so the pilots will oftentimes will put the thing on cruise control. They'll whatever, do their paperwork. They'll talk to the stewardess or whatever. They'll do all their kind of stuff. I don't know. Now they've locked the pilots back there, so I, I can't tell what they're doing, but I'm sure it's important. They do all that stuff. And so autopilot is awesome unless you're the pilot of Northwest uh, Airlines 188. That plane was put on autopilot by two captains, Captain Timothy Cheney and Richard Cole. And what they did is they put the plane on autopilot and they started talking about their schedules because they had changed some schedules and they started talking and they overshot the airport by 150 miles. I don't know if you remember this story. It was back in October. And so everyone was wondering, did they fall asleep? What, ha- what happened? And when it came out, it came out that they were just in a discussion about their scheduling. And one of the pilots said, I was blown away by how much time we'd wasted in this conversation. And when it finally all came out and, you know, everybody was, you know, everybody was accusing them of all this kind of stuff. Here's what the captain said. He said, I was wrong to have let another force come from outside and distract me. See, autopilot is awesome until you realize you've been on it for far too long. 
And this is what Nehemiah chapter 13 is all about. See, what's happened is Nehemiah got this vision from God, this construction project, and, and in his mind, he envisioned the wall around Jerusalem being built and the temple being restored and all the people of God doing what they were supposed to do. They were tithing and bringing their stuff to the storehouse and they were, they were uh, turning away from sin and they were following the law. And so this began to take shape. It actually happened. The wall was actually done and the temple was actually restored and the priests were actually consecrated again and and they had this worship service that you can read in chapter 10 it's just amazing what's happened in chapter 9 and chapter 10 amazing what happened and and we saw three times we saw this last week that the joy of God was just electric in that city they were restored they were actually participating in the vision and last week we talked about that the, the the real vision is intimacy with God that we serve this great God, this God who created everything, who designed us and has put this part in our, uh, this, this thing in our heart that, that there's something more and we can just search for him and go deeper and deeper and deeper and we can keep pursuing him and our relationship with him will just get better and better and better. He's put that in us and they were realizing it and they began to make, take great oaths and say, you know, we're never going back to the way it was. This is just too, this is too great. And they'd, they'd hear the word of God and it, it meant something to them because they'd been without it for hundreds of years. And it began to impact them and they began to know about their sin that separates them and they began to get on their knees and just get on their faces before God. It was just an awesome time. Right, that, it's, it was a church service like we've never seen. It was awesome. And it said in Nehemiah, that their joy was so great it could be heard from far away. That's, that's the vision God has for our lives. That there would be a relationship with God that's so deep and so rich that it would affect so many areas of our life that our joy would be heard from far away. That the joy you have at work would be heard three cubicles down. Exactly. That the joy that you have at school would be five lockers down. They'd, they'd just sense something about you. They'd realize something about you. That in your neighborhood, the joy of your home, about God just kind of coming in and filling your home with his joy and his, your, uh, and his peace would be heard five houses down as you interact with your neighbors. That's, that's the vision. And I'm so glad chapter 13 was placed in Nehemiah. Because if it ended at chapter 12, we'd all walk away going, okay, we, we set up a wall, we hang up our, 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 our areas of our life, the gates, the areas of our life, our sexuality, our finances, our ministry, our relationships. We hang up those gates, and then we start worshiping, and then everything's cool from here on out. But he, here's the point, and here's the thing I want you to write down on your outline. There is no autopilot. It doesn't work. Autopilot does not work. You are going to find yourself either in an accident, overshooting what you're supposed to go, where you're supposed to go, undershooting where you're supposed to go. There's no autopilot. What happened to the people of Israel? Once they got the walls made, once they got the gates hung, once they got the temple restored, they went on autopilot. Once they had a really great church service and they go, oh, now I get it. All we have to do are these certain things. They went on autopilot 
and everything began to unravel. So what happens is, Nehemiah sets all this stuff up. And I'm a structure freak. I love structure. I love systems. I love things that, um, that where you can kind of like, like for me, one of the things Cece and I obsess about is when a visitor comes here, like can we take care of them from first time visitor all the way to fully devoted follower of Christ. That is our vision for our church, that someone could come visit and we'd have a system in place through our 101, 201, 301 classes, through our membership, through small groups, that they would come and visit and they would be taken to a fully devoted follower of Christ. The way we do that is through reaching, restoring, and responding. And for the next couple weeks, we're gonna go back into our mission statement and kind of talk about that a little bit and see how it aligns with the scripture. But that's, that's, that's the goal. So I love these systems. So Nehemiah set these systems up. Everything was all set. And he told the king, and way back in chapter one, I need to go do this, but then I'll come back. And the king said, all right, set a time. And so he did. And he got it done in his time frame, and he went back. And we don't know how long he was gone, but when he came back, he was ticked. <laughs> probably not on his way. On his way, he was probably excited to see how the systems work, to see, man, when I left, you guys were praising the Lord. You were all into it. It was great. You were sacrificing of yourselves. You were giving your time, your talents, your offerings. We had people, in, the right people in place, the right, but what happened? They went on autopilot. That's what happened to them. And so what I want to do, um, I want to kind of show in chapter 13, there are four areas that Nehemiah has to address that I think are really pertinent to our own life. Because I think oftentimes in our lives, we go on autopilot. The marriage is working out fine, so we just kind of let it go. Our friendships are going well, so we just kind of let them go. Our finances are going fine, so we just kind of stop working on our finances. Maybe work's going great, so we just kind of stop working under the Lord. We just kind of get into a groove. And what ends up happening is all the things that were so exciting before begin to dull and the things that we begin to replace with aren't bad at first. It's not a big deal. Maybe we start watching more television. Maybe we start purchasing things. It's not, it's not a big deal. There's not sin. But once we're on autopilot and we're one mile past and two miles past, and like that captain said, all of a sudden we're blown away at how far off the mark we were. Why? because we're on autopilot. Let's, let's take a look at what happened. Nehemiah comes back, and the first problem he has is, uh, I, 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 I call these four pilot errors. Is that what I called it? Yeah. I don't know anything about flying. I just thought it was the autopilot thing, so none of these relate to flying a plane, okay? I just did it, okay? So here, here's the first one, is giving the enemy room. Giving the enemy room. I suppose we could talk of that about flying, where they now they bar the you know, they have all the security stuff in the pilot's room. But anyway, that isn't what happened. So uh, we give the enemy room. What happened? We have this priest, Eliashib. Now, we heard about Eliashib in chapter 3. He was the very first person we hear working on the wall. And where he, where he was working was the sheep gate. That was where the sheep came in to be sacrificed in order to atone for the people's sin. This guy was the priest, and he was a hard worker, and he, with his own hands, began to rebuild that section of the wall. It was awesome. It was awesome to see a man of God in a high position actually getting his hands dirty and doing something. That's where we hear about Eliashib. We also hear about two other guys who were bad, 
Sambalot and Tobiah, the Ammonite. Remember we talked about Sambalot? Sambalot, he was like the big bully, and, and uh, Tobiah was like his little sidekick that talked like this and going, yeah, Sambalot. Remember? <clears throat> so, so <laughs> wow. Never do that again. Okay, so what happens? Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 8. He comes back, and he says, Before I came back, Eliashib, the priest, had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God. Okay, that was his job. You be in charge of the storerooms. What happens? He goes on autopilot. Watch. He was closely associated with Tobiah. As you're reading this, you go, dun, 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 right? Because Tobiah's bad. And he had provided him with a large room formerly used, listen, to store the grain offerings and incense and temple articles and also the tithes of grain, new wine and oil prescribed for the Levites, singers and gatekeepers, as well as contributions for the priests. So what was happening here was Eliashib was in charge of the storerooms. And you know what they did? They took out the things that were to be used for the kingdom and they replaced it with Tobiah's household articles. Now, I'm sure the articles weren't idols. I'm sure they weren't signs that said, I hate God, and we're going to put them in there. It was probably old sweaters. Totally innocuous. Just, you know, Tobiah comes to Eliashib and says, hey, we're not really using that room anymore in the house of God. I got all these sweaters. It's summer. They're clogging up my garage. I want to work out there. I got a new foosball table. Can I put them in there? And it's like, sweaters? Yeah, sure. I don't, I'm looking in here. There's nothing wrong with sweaters. Watch what, watch what happens. Watch what, uh, what um, Nehemiah does. It's on the wall behind us. I was greatly displeased. That's a polite way of saying it another way. And threw all Tobiah's household goods out of the room. <laughs> so cool. I mean, can you imagine? You remember, you know the word picture you have of Jesus overturning the tables at the temple? It was probably the same thing. He probably looked up a lamp. You know, he just throwing out all his household goods. Get it out of here. But he doesn't just stop there. It wasn't just about removing items and getting them out. Watch what he does. I gave orders to purify the rooms, and then I put back into them the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. See, our lives are filled with these rooms, all all these different rooms that we use for God, our money, our time, our relationships, all these different things. And oftentimes, it's not what we bring into them. It's what gets sacrificed and has to be moved out. So I'll give you an example in my own life. Uh, one of my, I have an obsessive compulsive personality. <laughs> you might not know that by now, but I do. And so I'll start watching television, just a little bit of television. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with watching television. But then all of a sudden, it will become a substitute. I'll say, I just need to relax. I just need to unwind. And it becomes a substitute for unwinding with the word of God, for, unwi- for going to God in prayer and going, God, I need to unwind. I am stressed out. Let me tell you what's going on. And so what's happened is it's not that watching Build It Bigger or whatever show it is you want. It's not that that's so bad. Those are just like old sweaters. It's what you had to remove in order to make room for it, you see? So in my own life, you know, if I'm not careful, I will begin to remove articles of the house of God and I'll begin to push those aside and fill up my time with things that don't please him. 
And oftentimes God needs to go, hey, you got to get rid of all that stuff, consecrate the room, and bring my stuff back in. Again, it starts out, you're only one mile past the airport. It's not a big deal. But if gone unchecked, it becomes 5, 10, until you're 150 miles away because you're on autopilot. And that's what happened here. They neglect, they, um, uh, this guy, Eliashib, figured no big deal, man. It's just his household goods. It's not a sin. But the vision that Nehemiah had was, man, the house of God was going to be running on all cylinders. Every single room was going to be used for his kingdom and for relationship with the people. And see, what happened was the reason this could happen is the very next thing we talk about, number two, neglecting the work of the kingdom, of God's kingdom. Oftentimes we get on autopilot in our lives because the work of the kingdom seems to be being accomplished by those around us. And so oftentimes if we're having our quiet time and we're giving money to the church and things are going well at home and things are going well at work, we enter into autopilot. And we assume that a lot of things in the kingdom are happening when in fact they're not. And this is what was happening there. Let me show you. Um, in Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 10, it says this. I lear- also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them. Okay, now you have to understand what's going on in the Old Testament here. The way God designed it was that the people of Israel would work the land that they, they would kind of have their jobs, they do their things, and the priests and those who are involved in ministry, now I know where you think this is going, it's not going this way. You're like, you want to raise, don't you? No, that's not where it's going. The, the priests and the people in, in, in ministry would be able to focus on that, and they would, through their tithe, bring that to the, to the storehouse so that the people who are doing the sacrifices, who are singing, who are doing all these kinds of stuff, can focus on that. So that when the people came to have a relationship with God, to meet God in the temple, everything was taken care of. This wasn't happening. This wasn't happening. So in verse 10, it says, um, the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them, and that all the Levites and singers responsible for service had gone back to their own fields. In other words, they had to, they had to take care of their families. So they went back, and they started working fields and working on other things, and now the, the, the house of God was being neglected because not everyone was doing what they were supposed to do. As a matter of fact, what was so amazing is if you go back to chapter 10, you see these oaths that were taken by the people in all their excitement of the joy of the Lord. They started making, they signed it with an oath and a curse, and they said, here's what we're going to do. I'm so excited about Jesus. I'm just going to, let's all sign it. Let's all agree. So they do. And and here's one of the things uh, that they say in chapter 10, verse 39. We will not neglect the house of our God. What happened? They went on autopilot. And so they'd bring their tithes to the the temple. They'd bring, and then all of a sudden, well, 10% is relative. You know, back then it was like the first fruits. Well, which is really the first fruits. I mean, this is kind of, this, is, this could still be first fruits and everything slowly, not, not a big decree, not slowly, they went on autopilot and they stopped giving. They stopped seeing the house of God as, as, as where he dwells and kind of the center point of ministry. And so here's what happens. Here's what Nehemiah does in verse 11. So I rebuked the officials and asked them, why is the house of God neglected? Then I called them together and stationed them at their posts. 
He said, listen, the house of God is being neglected. Get to work again. It's really important. Here's, here's where this shows up in the American church. Oh, happy 4th of July, by the way. I almost forgot. Here's what happens in the American church. We get oftentimes, and I, I know this happens with me, we get so consumer-minded. We, we get so uh, focused on what, 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 are you, what are you doing for me that we forget that, in fact, it's our offering, not just money, that comes in, that, that produces all this stuff. And so we forget that. Now listen, here's the great thing about Living Spring. Me personally, I don't feel like we have this problem. I don't think our church has this problem. This isn't a, you know, let me tell you what's going on. Here's what I'm worried about, though. Are we on autopilot? Has our giving just become, write the check, oh, yeah, that's what I do. I pay my gas bill, my electric bill, I give to the church, and there we go. That's not the way God has designed it. God has designed it, and this is why we've changed the way we take offering. God has designed it to where we say, man, God, I'm going to write this check. I'm going to fill this envelope with money. I'm going to do because. I want to see your kingdom just, I want to see Garden Grove reached and, and our surrounding communities re- reach for Jesus. I want to see our children's ministry just rocking. I, I want to see our kids from just a very small age come to a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and understand that as they go from that to junior high to high school and on into the college group. I, I want to see visitors welcomed and loved. I, I don't, I don't want to be the one who's in the way of this. See, that, that's why we do it that way. And, and again, I, I don't think we have a problem, but this is, chapter 13 is a warning that we don't get an autopilot. Another way this shows is the way that we're stationed at our posts. And so sometimes what happens in the church, and again, I don't think this is a problem here, but it can be, you have a small group leader. Every week, the guy or girl is pouring into that small group. They're, they're, they're coming up with um, lessons and they're calling their people and they're, they're pouring their thing out. And, and some of the small group members are just like, yeah, I can't make it. I've had a long day. I'm tired. I'm this, I'm that. Instead of being stationed at their post in the small group, encouraging that leader, encouraging those around them, using their spiritual gifts. Because we just think, oh, it's, he, it'll be good. It was, it was good last week. Or we start complaining. Yeah, I like our small group, but... He's kind of, I don't know, he seems burnt out. And so it's not really that great anymore, right? We see it in our children's ministry. Ah, it's all taken care of. We don't need anybody. We see it in our youth ministry. Oh, yeah, well, you know, why don't they? Here's where it shows up, again, not in this church, but uh, uh, again, if we're, if we're on autopilot, here's where it comes up. You, you got these youth workers. We have a summer camp coming up for the youth that they're super excited about. It's going to be amazing. And so all the youth go to summer camp, and, they, and, and everybody pays their thing, and people come to Christ, and their stories. When they come back from summer camp, their stories about how people have gotten rid of chains that they've been bound with. They've forgiven their families. They've done all these things, and the workers come back, and they're wiped out. They've been camping with these kids. They've spent everything. They've cried with them. They've, they've spent all this time. They've spent their own personal money. They've taken vacation days. They come back. They come back. They're exhausted. And it's Sunday, and Monday they got to go back to work, and they're like, oh, God, this is for you. And all of a sudden, doot, 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 doot. You know what? Pick up their cell phone. Um, yeah, Joey had a $70 sleeping bag, which is lost now. Where is it? Wah, wah, wah. 
What happened? We've neglected the house of our God when we do that. We said, man, this guy's poured everything into it. And for me, my number one thing is a $70 sleeping bag. We do it with worship leading. We do it with where we come in. And again, this is, we have to be careful not to be on autopilot. And the only reason I'm talking about it is I'm just like you. I have the same thing, probably more so, because I want everything here to be perfect. We neglect the house of our God. Listen, if you want to know how you can help, children's ministry, we need workers. Youth ministry, we need workers, both junior high and high school. We need teachers for our 101, 201, and 301 class. We need small group leaders. We need people who can um, help with the grounds of just, you know, you've got some time and you want to know we've got a list of things that need to get done. There's many, many ways where the house of God doesn't need to be neglected and there's places for you to fit. Your place might just be, you know what my job is? My job is to show up at my small group every week without fail because my job is to serve the small group leader who's has a full-time job and is putting all that effort in, and my job is to be a support to him. Those are just different ways we can uh, get off of autopilot. Number three, neglecting worship. Neglecting worship. What happens? Verse 13, uh, chapter 13, verse, uh, oh, chapter 13, verse 15. I said last week I was going to get my glasses, but I need to get them. In those days, I saw men in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys together with wine, grapes, figs, and other kinds of loads. And they were bringing all of this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. What is that, what is that on the Sabbath? What does that mean? We don't really celebrate a Sabbath, but we should. You know why? Because Jesus said Sabbath was created for man. God knows how we were created. And what God says is you need to set a period of time aside just to stop. And you say, well, how am I going to get all my stuff done? That's exactly the question he wants you asking during that time. Of like, you know what? Can I put this, can I put those things aside for God? Can I put my work aside for God? Can I put my chores aside for God? Can I just relax and focus and just focus on him? It's worship. That's what it is. And so what was happening was the, it, they, were start, they had their walls, they had the temple, everything was going, and they went on autopilot. And all of a sudden, when they went to the temple, they're like, oh, yeah, I'm done with my sacrifices. I'm done with everything. Cool. Check it off. Boom, 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 boom. Well, what's next on my list? Oh, man, I got I to gotta get some stuff done for work on Monday. If I can get this done, Monday will be a lot better. This is what I do in my own life. I'm just speaking from personal example. I have a hard time just resting in God. I neglect my worship. And so what I do is, I make this my worship, what the band does. And then I'm ticked if it doesn't go right. Because if it doesn't go right, you messed up my worship. And God goes, no, no, no. Uh-uh. Your worship happens during the Sabbath when you're with me and you spend your time with me. Remember, the vision is intimacy. And when that happens, then we go, oh, then we come here and all we're doing on Sunday is just celebrating with everybody else going, man, isn't God good? Play it, Mike, do it. <laughs> isn't God great? Isn't, it, isn't this awesome to be together in the house of God? So what does he do? What does Nehemiah do? Well, again, he's not that happy, okay? And he does some things that we don't, necessarily do nowadays um, but maybe we should maybe we should 
He, rebu- he says, I rebuked the nobles of Ju- Judah and said to them, what is this wicked thing you're doing, desecrating the Sabbath day? Didn't your forefathers do the same thing so that our God brought all this calamity upon us and upon the city? And now you're stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. You're blowing it, guys. This is supposed to be a time where we really have an intimate time with God, where we relax and we can focus on our families and just be together and just kind of do it. I I struggle with this. My Sabbath is very difficult for me. And so I struggle with it. And God keeps putting it on my heart. Don't desecrate the Sabbath. As a matter of fact, Nehemiah does one other thing. He closes all the gates to the Sabbath. And what was happening was um, traders were coming, T-R-A-D-E-R-S, traders like Trader Joe's, I love Trader Joe's. Uh, and so they come and they'd camp out there. So right when the gates opened, they could, they could come in. And I love the way the NIV says it. It says, Nehemiah went down and he said, listen, I'm warning you. If you do this again, I'm going to lay hands on you. And he wasn't talking about prayer. And I thought to myself this week, wouldn't that be awesome if we're just like, oh, that's really great. Let me lay hands on you. Oh, thank you very much. You know, you could just, God, this is, it's a Nehemiah, okay? No, that would be awesome. So that's what I was thinking about doing. But he's serious about it. He says, if you do this again, I'm going to beat you down. Go ahead, bring your stuff to the gates and see what happens. And it says they no longer did that. Now, I don't know if Nehemiah just was ripped. I don't, I don't know what he looked like. I don't know if he had all his men with him, and they're just like, well, with their swords, you know, shing, or whatever they do. I don't know what he did, but here's the thing. He did something to protect worship. They'd gone on autopilot, and he said, we have got to do something to get out of this rut, both in giving the enemy room, both in uh, uh, not neglecting the house of our God, being in a rut in ministry, or desecrating worship of just putting all of our worship on the worship band instead of on ourselves during the week and then just celebrating with the worship band. That's what, that's what worship's all about. Number four, neglecting spiritual leadership at home. Okay, here's what happens. He says, moreover in those days, this is verse 23, I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of, language of Ashdod and the, and the other, the language of other peoples. And I did, and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. Now, this wasn't a racist thing, right? He wasn't like saying, you know, don't only marry someone of your own race. This is not what he was talking about. Remember the vision. The vision is intimacy with God. The vision is to live a life that is so amazing that God can bless you and work through you and that your joy is heard in uh, in those surrounding you and that it'll bring glory to God. And so he says uh, uh, they didn't know how to speak um, the language of Judah. They, they didn't have any sense of their spiritual roots. They didn't have any sense that we worship a God. I mean, everything in the temple was in the language of Judah. Now, if the kids don't know how to speak the language of Judah, guess what they're not getting? Anything from God. They'd totally given up on spiritual leadership in the home. They've married these other other women from, from other countries. Now, listen, I don't know why. Maybe Ammonite women are just 
hot. I, I, I don't know. They don't have pictures of them back then. I don't know what the allure is. Maybe they're, maybe they're mysterious. Maybe a Moab woman is just mysterious and, uh, you know, dark, smoky voice or whatever. Who, who knows what the reason is? Okay, now watch what happens. He says, <laughs> number four, he, he says in, in uh, verse 25, I rebuke them. Now listen to what he does. Listen to how he handles a lack of spiritual leadership in the home. It's not even spiritual leadership. It's more of spiritual focus. It's more of a, a, a spiritual uh, intentionality. He says, I rebuke them and call down curses on them. Listen, I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. Okay, this is why I got a haircut this week. I thought, man, if the church takes this seriously, I'm in big trouble. I'm getting in less trouble each year. It says, uh, and, and pulled out their hair. I made them take oaths in God's name and said, you are not to give your daughters to mar- in marriage to their sons. You are not to take their daughters in marriage and for your sons or for yourselves. Listen, was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Awesome word picture, Nehemiah. Perfect. It's like Nehemiah was studying all week long. He's like, how can I explain this? Solomon is the perfect example because Solomon went on autopilot. Solomon had it. When you read in 1 Kings about Solomon, it's this guy who just, I mean, he had wisdom. He had, he, the, the, the nations around him loved his God. He built the temple, and when it was completed, it was a serious worship service. This wasn't just like, look what I did. He was like, God, please, I've built you this temple. Please, 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 please come and fill it. And when people come and they have their problems, address them. And when people come and bring sacrifices, forgive them. Please do that. This guy had it. It was awesome. What happened? 1 Kings Chapter 11, verse 1, one of the saddest verses of the Bible. It's not up there. It says, King Solomon, however, you go through all 11 chapters of awesomeness. King Solomon, however, went on autopilot. Nuts. He overshot the airport. Here's what happened. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women. And it says, it goes on to say, there, his wives turned them astray. I say, amen to that. No, I'm just kidding. Okay, right? Many foreign women. Now, what was the problem with foreign women? Does that have anything to do with interracial marriage? No, it doesn't have anything to do with that at all. Your nationality was your religion at that time. And so, so if you were to do it in this, in this day and age, if somebody was German, they would have these German idols. And you know, don't marry a German. Whatever you do, they'll make you serve the bratwurst god or whatever it it this giant hot dog thing of gold you know yeah that that was kind of how it works so now it's now it's different we don't we don't understand it but here's the way the new testament describes it it says don't be unequally yoked in other words don't spiritual leadership in your home has to be a priority it has to be an intention and Nehemiah was dead serious about it. And he goes, Solomon, man, isn't that why, how he blew it? He had all this wisdom, all this riches, all this stuff. He had everything in place. And then he went on autopilot in this one area of his life. And guess what happened to, to Solomon, the wisest man in the world? He started worshiping other gods because he went on autopilot. 
Now, oh, sorry, I'm running a little late. Here's the problem. The, har- the hardest time to work on your vision is when you're actually experiencing success in it. The hardest time to really be into an area of your life is when there's kind of, when things are going okay in it. When your marriage is going well, it's kind of hard to put a lot of effort into it because you're like, well, I'd really like to use my effort somewhere else. If, if, if there's not that much sin in your life and you think, wow, you know what? Things are going pretty good. I used to be addicted to this. I used to have a problem with that. I used to be angry. I used to be, yeah, you know, everything's going pretty good. And you take your hands off the wheel and you start going. That's when it's the hardest. And he, here's, here's my word for some of you today because it's my word for myself. When the walls are up and when the temple's there and, and, and everything's working good, that's when you're safe to go even deeper. That, that's when you're just like, God, how do I take it to the next level? How, is there any other room in my life where I can remove the sweaters and bring in some type of way to serve you? Is there, is there something going on where maybe something's going really well at work and you just go to your boss and you say, you know what, I, I need to leave on Wednesdays at 3.30 because I need to get ready for working with the high schoolers on Wednesday night. You see, you know, the things are going, your marriage is going really, really well. And you go, you know what? Let's, let's do this. Let's, let's sacrifice part of our income for something else. It's not going to put a stress on us because we're doing great. Let's, let's do, let's, let's take our marriage to the next level. Let's minister together somewhere. Our marriage is going well. Let's take it. Let's, let's go. Or your relationships, your friendships are going really good. And finally, you call up your buddy and you go, hey, you know what? That's, I'd like to pray with you on my way to work. We both go at the same commute time. I'd like to get on my cell phone so we could pray together about our day, pray about your family, pray about wh- whatever's going on. See, autopilot is so dangerous because it lulls us to sleep with the hum of the engines going, everything's fine. Those pilots lost their pilot's license. It's really sad. One of them had 24 years of sp- spotless dedication to that airline. Another one who's 54 was flying since he was 14 years old. Spotless record. They went on autopilot too long just once. <laughs> 